0: This is Sam of Historiansplaining, a historian tells you why everything you know is wrong. This podcast can be found on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and other platforms. And if you can help to keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page, the link should be in the description. So this past Friday I had a conversation with Michael of Hi, How Are You, the world's largest queer Talmud podcast, about the subject of Solomon's Temple and it happens that michael and chava of hi how are you are working on a commentary on a recent modern day computer programmer who created what he considered to be the third temple a successor to solomon's temple and the second temple in the form of a computer operating system so in trying to unpack and explain this sort of eccentric project Michael and Chava wanted to go back and discuss the long history of the temple as it's been used as a symbol, as a source of allegory or mystical symbolism, and why it continues to hold this appeal for so many different people in different traditions all around the world through the centuries. And Solomon's Temple, it happens, is a subject that I have dealt with some in research and writing in my own work, especially in my research and writing about Freemasonry. And I'll link in the description to the two prior lectures that I've already posted before about the history and the origins of Freemasonry. But nonetheless, I did do some more further research for this conversation, which I'll post in just a few minutes. You'll hear my conversation with Michael. And I was able to get into some of that history and different meanings that people have taken out of the temple. But in addition, I also, in my research, discovered some new things, some further context and background that I hadn't really understood before. Perhaps most importantly, I was able to discover how much the temple was built and designed and in order to evoke the Garden of Eden. And one could see it, in a sense, as a sort of symbolic reconstruction of the Garden of Eden. Reportedly, it was covered in rich floral and vinework motifs. The courtyard, much like the courtyards of other temples in the ancient Near East, such as Hatshepsut's temple in Egypt, was planted with lush gardens and particularly with palm and cedar and cypress and olive trees. The menorah inside the temple was designed to mimic the shape of an olive tree and sometimes was likened to the tree of life. And moreover, the Book of Ezekiel, says that the Garden of Eden was actually atop a mountain with rivers flowing out from it, much as Solomon's temple was sited on top of Mount Moriah, or what's now called the Temple Mount, which has springs and streams running out from it. And if one looks even at the wording in the Hebrew texts that describe the Garden of Eden and the tabernacle and the temple, one sees close parallels and connections. For instance, the word hitalek, is used to describe God walking about in his direct presence in the Garden of Eden and then also in the tabernacle, and hence by implication the temple. And perhaps even more revealingly, the word avodah, meaning work or labor, is used in describing God commanding Adam and Eve to labor in the garden. And then the same word is used for the rituals of the temple worship service. So in some way, you could say the temple is the continuation of the Garden of Eden. And even further, in the particular materials and images used in the temple, one sees intentional echoes of the garden. For instance, in Genesis, the garden is said to hold precious onyx stones. And in the temple, the priest's vestments had insets of onyxes. So there's this apparent attempt to communicate That the temple represents a sort of return to this direct communion between human beings and God as existed in the Garden of Eden before the fall of man. And it forms, you could say, a kind of bridge from that origin of humankind, that place of creation through history to the present. And moreover, as you may know and as I was aware, the temple also is built around cosmic symbolism. For example, the enormous round basin supported by sculpted oxen set in the courtyard in front of the temple that's called the Brazen Sea was understood to represent the ocean from which the earth was called forth and shaped and also the veils that covered over the front gateway of the temple and then again covered the entrance to the holy of holies the most sacred inner sanctum of the temple those veils were said to represent the firmament the sphere of stars in the night sky that separates the visible temporal world from the celestial eternal realm beyond So the temple in its very fabric, its arrangement, its adornments, it has this multi-level symbolism that pulls together a whole, you could say, conception of the cosmos and of human beings' place in the cosmos, which then can be drawn upon, commented on, revised, adapted through the ages. So I'll now play for you the conversation that I had with Michael of Hi, How Are You, where we discuss some of how this has happened through actual history, and this installment will be brought to you by the letter H.
1: Welcome, everybody, to a special episode of Hi, How Are You? It's a crossover with historian-splaining. In front of me is... Samuel Biagetti, the host, producer, author the Everything of Historians Plaining. It's a podcast that tells you how everything you know is wrong. Longtime listeners might remember him from a series on Hasidic Judaism, on shabbatai
0: yeah some of our greatest hits
1: yep so i have invited sam onto the show to talk about solomon's temple the reason why we wanted to bring sam on is because we're doing a series about temple os this operating system that was created by terry davis who was inspired to create an operating system that is imagined to be the third temple and so I wanted to ask Sam about the history of the temple, how people use it as symbol, how people mythologize it. Why does it grasp the imagination of so many people? What's the deal there? And so, Sam, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. What's that noise?
0: Well, there's the church bells.
1: Okay, there are church bells playing in the background. There's a
0: lawnmower and church bells. Okay, well, we're just going to... Small town living.
1: We're going to have to deal with that. Can you bring the microphone a little closer your... Closer to my big mouth? To your... <laughs> Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So Sam, what's the deal with the temple? Why is everyone (laughs) so into the temple these days?
0: Everyone's so into it. I think that the temple plays a really important kind of anchoring role in Jewish and Christian mythology and beyond that as well, also in Islam and then in modern movements like Freemasonry. It's this very important central kind of organizing symbol. And I think it's important because when you look at kind of the unfolding and the development of theology and spiritual beliefs, firstly in Judaism, and then in different ways in other traditions as well, but especially in Judaism, the understanding of God and the divine gets more and more abstract. Like when you go from early biblical texts in the Torah through prophetic texts and commentaries, it becomes very abstract, right? What had once been a very direct personal deity who appears to people and talks to people directly and who has something of a you know, personality, a personal name, becomes over time more abstract and transcendent. And you can suppose that early on, you know, The Jewish God was understood to be a sort of ethno national tribal deity, like many others in the ancient Near East. And then it becomes more of a a world creator God and a God for all of humankind, right? Who sort of establishes transcendent moral principles. I think that the temple then became very important because it gives you something more tangible, so to speak, right? Something concrete that you can talk about, depict, picture, visualize, right? And a lot of the mystical traditions, especially in Judaism, but other traditions as well, are about mentally visualizing the temple, placing yourself there. And when you read early descriptions of the temple, it's not just a a building with a certain form, right? It's a very sensory, Kind of phenomenon. It has images, sounds, you know, the, the chant, the shofar, uh, smells, the incense, the sacrificial offerings. It's a sort of enveloping sensory experience, which is probably how it was for many people when they went to the actual historical temple. But then, of course, after the temple is destroyed, you can still kind of conjure up that whole experience imaginatively and it gives you
1: something like almost tangible. So do you think that people sort of need something in the tangible world in order to process their metaphysical ideas generally and just the temple happens to be the thing that you yeah. to fixate on?
0: Yeah, well, I, I think that to sort of fully engage your body and mind, you need something that goes alongside the sort of abstract conceptions, right? And a lot of mysticism, you know, we mentioned mysticism. Mysticism is... I think fundamentally the idea that you can access something directly that isn't apparent to the ordinary senses in ordinary everyday experience, right? But that you can access it in some direct way, but you still need to engage your mind and your body and use your full faculties and imagination and the temple. It acts as kind of a portal or a conduit, right? From the everyday to something philosophical and spiritual right and and the temple has always been understood as a kind of gateway from one world to another right one realm of being to another it's not just a building or a place
1: i'm just thinking about Merkavah mysticism it's again you're not just thinking for those of you who don't know it's just a mystical practice that there's many different versions of that sort of predates medieval kabbalah where yes there's a mental component to getting yourself into a certain state to connect with the divine, but you also have to do a lot of physical things. You face different directions. You have to move your body around in various ways. You have to put yourself in a certain positions in certain places. The way you're talking about the temple is in line with my understanding of that type of mysticism where it's not you can't just think your way into some sort of mystical state. You have to think and do your way into that state.
0: Yeah, it's mind and body together, right? It's all parts of your being being mobilized, right? And Merkavah makes a lot of sense when you look at the temple and how it was supposed to function when it was an actual building. If you read the descriptions that survive about the temple complex in the Solomonic Age and after, it has two basic sort of nodes. Firstly, there's this outer courtyard with basin and altars, but the main focus is the sacrificial altar where people would bring offerings like, you know, doves or goats or cattle or whatever and they would take the most fragrant parts and burn them on the altar and then the smoke would ascend up towards heaven so the idea was it's like it's it symbolically represents the israelite people or any people who are making offerings and gentiles did sometimes also go to the courtyard of the temple to take part in that part of the worship it's like their prayers, supplications, thanksgiving, rising up into the heavens, right, to reach God, right, to reach the, the divine realm. Then from the courtyard, you would go through a gateway into a long hall that was called the holy place. And that's where you'd have the menorah. And you'd have another altar for incense, and the incense was very important, and the smell was considered a critical part of the worship, and the incense is also symbolic of prayer rising up towards the heavens, right? And then finally, there would be a veil, and behind the veil would be the Kodesh HaKadoshim, the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, which is a just a simple cube-shaped chamber that would have the Ark of the Covenant in it and the in the figures of two cherubim perched sort of guarding the Ark of the Covenant. And the idea there is ordinary people do not go into that room, right? It's the most closed off. Most of the time the veil is closed. You can't really see clearly into it. It's very protected. And only the high priest would go in on certain occasions. And the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the cherubim on it, was sometimes called the mercy seat. And it was understood to be a throne. And the form of it basically mimics thrones of ancient Near Eastern rulers. Like you can see paintings of pharaohs sitting on similar shaped thrones with these sort of winged creatures with their arm, their wings outstretched, right? Similar basic concept. So the idea there is the Holy of Holies is like the counterpart to the altar of sacrifice. The Holy of Holies is where the presence of God what you could call the Shekhinah, what we might today call the Shekhinah, right? The presence of God comes down from the heavenly realm and literally takes a seat, right? Enthrones himself in this place where then God's presence and blessings and the sense of peace, of shalom that comes from the divine presence flows out. So you see how it's like a big wheel. It's like a big Ferris wheel, right? The offerings go up to the heavens, mm-hmm. and then the divine presence comes down from the heaven. And there are these two different ends of the temple that are like the two two different directions, right? Well, after the temple was destroyed, certain people say, well, what do we do now? How do we get access to divine presence? How do we get that sense of blessing and, and peace? Well, you can't get it at the temple because that whole complex is destroyed, so you have to go up to the heavens yourself. You have to extend your spiritual presence up into the celestial realm. And what, what, where will you go? What will you encounter when you get there? <laughs> I don't know. I <laughs> you, don't know. You get to the celestial temple, which is the counterpart. It's the mirror image, oh. right? There's no longer an earthly temple, but there is its image. In the heavenly world, that is the celestial temple, and you have to get up there, right? You have to ascend yourself and be received. You see how it's like a, it's the same thing, reversed. You have to be received in the celestial temple, and to get there, you have to somehow be carried up, right? You have to attach yourself, grasp onto some kind of heavenly elevator, that'll take you up there.
1: Oh, I hope self-immolation wasn't part of this process. No, no, no. It's like a thinking of yourself as a sacrificial dove in order to kind of get
0: there. No, but it's not it's not exactly that because you were trying to do what God did, right? In general, this is called theurgy, the idea that humans can somehow find the ability to do things that are godlike. And a lot of mysticism also involves theurge in some way. So, this is theurgical, the idea that you can travel through the cosmic realms using your own power, your own discipline, your own mind, right? But what gets you up there, you need you need like a vehicle, right? You need like an elevator to lift you up, right? Well, that's the
1: chariot. Right. E- Ezekiel's chariot.
0: Yeah. Well, e- well, Ezekiel, you can interpret The opening of Ezekiel, where he has this crazy vision about a a vehicle with two interlocking wheels, that can be understood as the chariot. But there's also even earlier texts like about Elijah, you know, the prophet Elijah doesn't die, rather he is picked up and carried to the heavens in a fiery chariot, right? So the idea of Merkabah, it just means the chariot, right? It's how do you get on that chariot? To pick you up and lift you like an elevator up into that heavenly realm where you can then enter the celestial temple and you can have a sort of encounter with God as a substitute for the earthly temple, which you no longer have access to, right? So it's a pretty simple solution, right? It's mysticism in place of an actual literal physical temple.
1: So you think after the temple gets destroyed and people don't have the physical component that's required to have mystical experience, once that's gone, Jews at least tended towards this theurgic approach, this Merkaba style approach to getting at the same goal.
0: Yeah, well, there were multiple different responses to losing the literal temple, and the mystical response was one of them. There are others, you know, synagogues existed alongside the temple in the second temple period, right? People would go make a pilgrimage and maybe make offerings at the temple if they could, but the rest of the time on Sabbath, they might just go to their local synagogue in the village or in their neighborhood. And the synagogue was sort of complementary. It was like in between the temple on the one hand and the home on the other. It was like semi-public but semi-domestic. And they would bring in symbols like the menorah the menorah was understood to represent the temple, right? And it was probably, you could say, it was the most holy object, the most important object that worshipers could actually see, right? Because they couldn't go all the way in to the Kodesh HaKadoshim and see the Ark of the Covenant itself, but they could see the menorah. And the menorah is super interesting and complex on its own. It was understood to represent the tree of life, right? It's tree-shaped, the branching out of the arms of the menorah actually kind of mimic an olive tree. If you look at olive trees, they look kind of like menorahs. And it also was understood to represent a feminine principle, right? Fertility. And the menorah and a certain other objects in the temple were sometimes called Asherah. And it's un- ambiguous what that means. Like, does that mean they represented the Canaanite female fertility goddess Asherah? Or does it mean that They had sort of adapted Asherah to be the sort of feminine side or feminine aspect of the Jewish God. Very ambiguous, right? No one is totally certain from the sources, like what exactly did they mean by that? But clearly there's an association with femininity, fertility, abundance, right? Hanukkah is the celebration of the oil harvest, right? And they brought in the oil from the olive trees to light the menorah, which is like a symbolic olive tree. And the olive tree also represents peace, harmony, shalom, right? The dove carries an olive branch. So people took the symbol of the menorah and they put it into synagogues. And this is one of the significant things we've seen in our. Arch- theology in recent years is when they excavate these ancient synagogues, there are like carvings of menorahs and frescoes of menorahs. And it was like a visual image people could see that sort of borrowed some of that sense of sanctity and blessing from the temple into the synagogue, right? Well, after the temple is destroyed, synagogues just multiply. And the Pharisaic approach to Judaism, which emphasizes the home, the synagogue, reading, study, the oral law, Right, All of that kind of mushrooms and becomes like the new mainstream Judaism, or you could, some would say, becomes Judaism after the loss of the temple, right? But then mysticism was another way, the mystical ascent to the celestial temple was another way to sort of get around the loss of the temple. And those two things could go together, right? Right. Or they could be in tension.
1: Yeah, in the Talmud, which is basically the compilations of this Jewish group that blossomed after the destruction of the second temple and focused a lot on learning the law, there's discussions of Merkava mysticism as one of the things that if you're like a real scholar, you also have to get into at some point. Mm -hmm.
0: It's like higher level.
1: Yeah, higher level or at least on par, I think, with the other things that you need to know. Yeah. Like in order to be considered a scholar in that particular community following the destruction of the Second Temple. So, I can see why there's like a need to replace the temple or a desire to somehow incorporate temple symbology into the Judaism that arises following the destruction of the temple. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go into why it's interesting to Christians and Muslims? It has branched out and it's been taken up and
0: reused in so many different ways. For Christians, the story of the temple and the destruction of the temple is always important right from the beginning. And we can see if you look in the Gospels, Jesus prophesies that the temple will be destroyed. Historically, we don't know for certain if he really said that maybe, maybe not. But the Gospels, which were written in the AD 70s and 80s, say that that was Jesus's prophecy, that this temple will be destroyed, not one stone will be left on top of another. And this was one of the ways that early Christians could argue for the importance of Jesus as a real divine figure, was that he foresaw the destruction of the temple, right? Well, then you have to ask, well, what's the relationship here? What do these things have to do with each other? So many Christians over the years have argued that Jesus's sacrifice of himself is a substitute for all the sacrifices that had been made at the temple previously, right? His sacrifice of himself as sort of the lamb, right? The Paschal lamb on Passover. That was kind of the ultimate sacrifice that now makes all other sacrifices unnecessary. And so hence the temple, it was inevitable that the temple had to be destroyed now that Jesus Christ was kind of the substitute or replacement. And then others also further argued that Jesus somehow in himself is the temple, right? He's the new temple, a purely spiritual temple. So we no longer need a physical temple or the church. You could say the church is the new temple. And many churches, especially churches built in the Holy Land, like the Church of the Holy Sepulcher, were in some way patterned To have some sort of reference to Solomon's temple as if they were the new temple,
1: right? The church has superseded, right? Has superseded the temple. Now, is that because a lot of early Christians were Jews and so they have that baggage or investment in the temple so then they need to do something with it and they just kind of chose to go in this particular direction?
0: Well, that's a hard question. I mean, we'd have to speculate a lot. We don't know exactly what they were all thinking. But, you know, the earliest Christians, of course, were Jews, and they knew all the mythology, all the traditions, all the philosophy surrounding the temple, right? That was a living tradition to them. But then also, sort of, the next wave of Christians after that were Gentiles who in some way or other Judaized, meaning they were in some way interested in Jewish customs, and they might go to a synagogue once in a while, and they might learn a little bit of Hebrew. They were, you could think of, if you picture the temple complex, right? Around the entrance, there's that courtyard, and there's a whole section of it that was called the courtyard of the Gentiles, right? Of the Goyim. There were Gentiles going there who were intrigued and participating in some way. And that was sort of the next base. For early converts to Christianity. And you can see where maybe for them, this was a really interesting and appealing idea that, well, you can now be fully part of this, but without having to actually go through all the ritual processes of conversion or purification and without having to bring a goat every month to the temple or whatever it is. You can instead have this purely internal and spiritual union with God through Christ right? It's sort of the new mode. But there's also a really interesting book in the New Testament called the Epistle to the Hebrews, which is of unknown authorship. No one has determined and maybe will never know who actually wrote it. But it is an early Christian letter aimed at Jewish Christians. And the argument of the Epistle to the Hebrews is that Jesus has taken the place of the high priest of the temple. And this, in a way, sort of is the beginning, you could say, of the weaving of the sort of details of the temple cult and its lore and its rituals into Christianity. And the epistles of the Hebrews basically says, well, we all know that the Israelite people sin, right? And what you do when you sin is you, you atone on Yom Kippur. You know, throughout the year, you might go make pilgrimages, make offerings at the temple. And then the most holy day on Yom Kippur, you fast. And on that day, the veil of the Holy of Holies is opened and the high priest alone goes in into the Holy of Holies. And this is all documented in, in Jewish writings as well. The high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and address God directly by God's personal name, you know, the, the Tetragrammaton, yad He the name you don't ordinarily say, right? Goes into the Holy of Holies, addresses God, and then takes a bit of blood from the sacrifices and sprinkles it on the mercy seat. And in this way this is the one moment on this one, you know, day of atonement that the high priest on behalf of Israel makes a direct offering like right to God. The rest of the time you'd stay out and leave the veil closed so that you acknowledge some separation, right, between God and the Jewish people. There's some there's some sort of Sense of holiness and distance. So the Epistle to the Hebrews says, "Well, Jesus has taken the place of the high priest, and Jesus has offered His blood directly to God, and that atones on behalf of all Israel and all humankind once and for all." So it's sort of like if you imagine, well, I, I'm I'm really tired of doing this temple worship routine and I want to get it all done once and for all, Jesus sort of offers that
1: shortcut, you could say, to put it crudely, right? When I think of Christians and Jews, I've been recently thinking of them as basically two religious movements that came out around the same time that are reacting to the destruction of the temple in slightly different ways. And I can understand the Christian idea of saying, well, this was inevitable, like we did the ultimate sacrifice. We basically... We like beat the temple at its own game in a sort of (laughs) way. But then once you've dealt with that sort of metaphysical explanation, it's strange to me that fascination with the temple among Christians, the way that they've chosen to deal with the trauma of the temple being destroyed, still continues, that they still are interested in the temple in comparison to, say, like other things that you were supposed to do according to the laws of the Torah, various like uh, dietary restrictions things like that they're not that fascinated with them they've kind of put them aside those things are not 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 that they're not important but they're not yeah important in the same way so why After the immediate flourishing of Christianity, does the interest in the temple still crop up from time to time? Or maybe it continues. Maybe it's not just cropping up from time to time. You you can tell me. Maybe it's, it's always there. It's always present.
0: Well, it always has to be. I mean, because that's the world that Jesus and his family and his disciples came from. And that's the language of the New Testament. And it's a very complicated relationship. You could say there's a sort of dialectical relationship between second temple period Judaism, if that's what you want to call it, right? The second temple period Jewish law, Jewish tradition and Christianity, because Christianity arises in large part. It arises as a selective negation of Jewish law. It's about sanctity and eternal life without having to go through the processes of Jewish law. But that's meaningless if you don't know what the Jewish law and customs and rituals were already that they were responding to, right? If you don't know about the temple, you don't know why it matters. Why does Jesus go into the temple courtyard and overturn the money changers' tables? Right. Everybody's heard that story. It's interesting. I read this book, which is actually by two Mormon scholars, which is a very good book. One of the authors begins the preface saying, I was always taught this story, but I was never told why were there money changers there? (laughs) Like what was going on in the temple courtyard that attracted Jesus's attention in the first place? And part of what was happening there, do you know why there were money changers? No. Why are they money changers? it's because people were coming from far and wide, To the temple, and they wanted to make some offering, and they might get a little, you know, a dove or something or some incense or whatever. So there were sellers set up all around the courtyards, the outer courtyards of the temple, selling these things to pilgrims, right? But what would you buy them with? You had to bring money with you to buy these things. And what was the money? It was Roman money with the emperor's face and very often also Roman deities and things stamped on them. So these things were impure. You couldn't bring those into the temple, right? That would be sacrilege to bring these sort of pagan idol objects, which are Roman coins, into the temple complex. So first you would go to the money changers and change your money for a kosher form of money, some sort of tokens or small, you know, pieces of gold, whatever it is that was kosher and not idolatrous, and that you could then bring into the sort of inner courtyard or closer to the temple to buy whatever it was that you wanted to then make as an offering, right? So that's why there were money changers in the first place. And Jesus overturning their tables can have multiple meanings, right? It can be about greed, people profiting off of others' piety, right? You're putting yourself up as an intermediary to profit off of other people's desire to do a holy act, to do a mitzvah. Also, arguably, he was rejecting this whole idea of the purity of the temple and that sort of life as people were actually living it in the world has to be kept out of the temple because that's somehow unclean. And in that way, you can see it as of a piece with the fact that Jesus socialized with prostitutes and Roman soldiers and all of those things, right? He wanted to violate those boundaries, right? But you can't understand these things unless you know, well, what was the temple about? And understand the enormous kind of symbolic importance and how it acted as this sort of focal point and anchor for the Jewish world.
1: So, everyone's dealing with the temple. The Jews are dealing with the temple destruction in their particular way. You have mystical traditions, you have synagogues, you have the Christians kind of negating a portion of Jewish law and using mythology around the temple or metaphysical explanations of the temple in order to justify that. Where does then these modern or, you know, there's examples in medieval times, the desire to recreate the temple come from?
0: Yeah, well, it's easy to forget that there was a real temple, you know, because it's had such a long afterlife as a symbol. It's easy to forget that it was also a real historical place. And we do have different evidences about it. Just to explain a little bit about it as a real historical thing, which is sort of interesting, is that the biblical texts say that it was built In the early years of Solomon's reign, which if we suppose that David and Solomon were real persons, and there is some supporting evidence for that, that there was a King David and very possibly was a King Solomon, that would put it in the 900s BC, right? Maybe somewhere around 920 or 30 BC is when it was built. And from the descriptions of it you know, there was this systematic demarcation of sacred spaces, right? You would approach the temple through galleries up, you know, and stairways up onto the Temple Mount. There would then be sort of a plaza with different courtyards as you approach in towards the entranceway. Then there's the so-called holy place, the sort of gallery with the menorah and incense altar and holy objects like lamps and pitchers and such. And then, The Holy of Holies, the sort of plain cube shaped room, the most sacred space, right? And there's a linear progression, right, into more and more sacred, more and more protected spaces. That basic concept seems to be pretty normal for the ancient Near East. And you can see other temples have been excavated, like in Syria and in Egypt, that are on the same basic layout, right? This was not so unusual. And there were also, there were other Israelite temples, which was something I did not realize. I mean, I knew that there was, of course, the tabernacle, the sort of traveling meeting tent with a sacred altar and the Ark of the Covenant enclosed within it, which the Israelites took with them as they moved around. And then the temple in Jerusalem is more or less the same basic design, or at least the same concept. But there also were other Israelite temples, several around Judea, I think at least one in Syria. And one in Egypt too, because there were some Jewish Israelite mercenaries employed in like the Egyptian armies in the Nile Delta. And in one of these like army towns, there were so many Israelites that they were like, let's build a temple here. They're also the same layout. Like they match the descriptions in the Jewish texts about how the temple was laid out. And the dimensions are similar. So it's like, this isn't like something that just popped out of some abstract realm. This was just a slight variation on the common ideas and customs about what a temple should be in the ancient Near East. What happened is that the other ones got shut down. From the Solomonic period onward, and especially in the Josiah reforms in the 600s BC, the monarchy in Jerusalem said all temple worship and offerings should be centered in one temple just in Jerusalem. These other ones should be closed down or destroyed or somehow demoted. And you can have synagogues out there in the towns and villages, but this will be the one temple, right? And all Israelites will come here to this one sacred
1: mountain. Well, you're really putting all your eggs in one basket in that situation. Yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Well, and you can think of it as like this massive bottleneck, right? Where like there was this widespread tradition of how to do worship, how to do offerings, how to relate to a deity. And it all ends up getting squeezed into this one place. And moreover, if you go back into like Genesis, there are different incidents like, um, you know, different biblical figures making offerings or having visions and theophanies, encounters with God, like Jacob wrestling the angel and then seeing the heavens open up, his vision of Jacob's ladder, all of those things retroactively get like co-opted and relocated onto the Temple Mount as the place where they occurred. They all happened on the Temple Mount, right? They just didn't know it yet that it was the Temple Mount. Oh, okay. So it's like this whole sacred geography gets pulled into one place. And yeah, like you said, they're putting all their eggs in one basket. And so when that one temple gets destroyed because the kingdom gets conquered by foreign superpowers. It's like, oh my God, everything that we thought about what was sacred and about our special link to this deity is like all smashed to bits, right? And you have to somehow recover it. You know, the, the Kabbalah tradition is, well, we'll somehow like find the pieces and put it all back together. Or you have to spiritualize it and say, we still have access We still have that special link to God. We just have to do it in a spiritual, metaphysical realm instead of a literal temple. Or you have to say, well, we're going to actually build another temple. We're just doing it over again. That wouldn't be so surprising if we were talking about that. And there have been efforts many times to build a third temple. This happened in the late Roman age with Julian the Apostate. I love this one. Okay, this is great. So the Christian view was it was fated by God that the temple would be destroyed. Because it's been replaced and superseded by Christ, right? So therefore, there shouldn't be any more temple. That was their position, and so for them, as long as the Temple Mount continued to just be bare rubble, that was a confirmation of the truth of Christian prophecy and of the superiority of the Christian covenant. Christianity is growing by the 300s. It's like a, it's a major religion. Constantine makes it like the quasi-official religion of the empire. 361, this emperor named Julian the Apostate comes to the throne. He is not a Christian. He's the last Roman emperor who's not Christian. He wants to suppress Christianity. What better way to do that than to get those Jews in Jerusalem to rebuild that temple and show that the Christians were wrong? So he makes an alliance with the Jews in Jerusalem and Judea and says, I'll give you money and state support to build another temple. And they start doing it. But then there's a massive earthquake, and then Julian dies in battle, and that kind of squashes the whole thing. And that then just gives further confirmation to Christians that they were right, that it is not God's will that there should be a third temple. But it happens again later times. The Persians invade and occupy Judea for several years in the 600s. They basically like Cyrus in biblical times in the 500s BC. They also say, Jews, go back to Jerusalem, rebuild your temple. They start doing it. Then they change their mind and say, actually, no, we're shutting this down because we don't want to encourage like an independent Jewish kingdom. So this has happened several times. But the thing is, as the years go on... Like year by year, more and more people invest all of this symbolism, mystical, theological symbolism into the temple and into the fact that it's gone, right? Into the fact that it only exists in mind, in spirit, in memory. And so the very notion of let's build a third temple becomes more and more loaded to the point that now if we talk about let's build a third temple, that's like an explosive idea. It seems like it calls into question all kinds of Jewish beliefs and teachings, right? And there are some who want to do it and who are trying,
1: right? Right. There are some Jews who want to do it and some Jews who don't want to do it. Who don't want to do it.
0: Yeah. A lot of that comes down to, at the same time that the temple has taken on more of this kind of loaded symbolism and baggage, so has the Messiah. So Messiah root just basically just means the king of the Jews, right? The Jews are a people, the Israelites are a people, Israel and At least some of the time they have a king and most peoples in the world who have kings think that those kings enjoy some sort of heavenly mandate. Right? That gives them authority. So originally it's just, well, the Messiah is just the king of the Jews. But as more and more years go by without a Jewish kingdom, the Messiah becomes more and more spiritualized and takes on a greater sort of cosmic redemptive significance, such that today, if we talk about a Messiah, it's almost like we're talking about a spiritual heavenly being, a divine, semi divine being. So the temple and the Messiah sort of grow in importance or they evolve in parallel. And what is the relationship between them. They're often linked together in some way. And some Jews believe that the Messiah will come with the sort of full backing of God. And once Israel has recognized the Messiah, then it'll be time to build a third temple and we'll get that sort of divine link on earth again. Others see it the opposite way and think it's incumbent upon the Jews to secure the Temple Mount and build the temple, then the Messiah will come. You have to kind of earn the Messiah, right? You can see it either way. So that's one of these divisions then that divides how do people respond to this idea of like, let's just go on the Temple Mount and lay a cornerstone and start the rebuilding of the third temple.
1: What about non-Jews and their interest in a third temple? Yeah.
0: I mean, there are multiple factors here. I mean, in present day, Clearly, evangelical Christian Zionism is like a big force in Israel and Palestine and American politics. Like, it's a big factor in why the U.S. continues to back up the government of Israel, right? And many Israeli Jews and many Zionists abroad are happy to make that alliance. They like that, that source of support, political support. But it comes with these complications, like what are the Christian Zionists actually working towards? Like what what do they want? What are they trying to get out of this? And in large part, it's they want to see a regathering of the Jews in Israel and the creation of a new Jewish kingdom, because they see that as part of fulfilling the prophecies towards the second coming of Christ, the apocalypse, right, the end of days. They see this as part of kind of the end time, end of history.
1: I would love to have (laughs) seen them make those arguments to the earlier Christians in 300 AD about the rebuilding of the temple. Like, why Why does the switch like that happen?
0: Yeah, well, and I, I mean, I think that when it comes to specifically the rebuilding of the temple, to them, I think, I don't think they want to see it happen, but I think they don't see it as so loaded because they don't think it would be a real legitimate temple. They think they've got the real legitimate temple, which is Christ in the Christian church. So to them, it's just a building, right? So everybody, you could say, is kind of playing with theological fire here. right? What do you think you're doing? And what do you think is the ramifications of this whole idea or project of building another temple? But just also to add to that, the temple is important in Islam too. And there are many important ideas about the temple that sort of arose out of this complicated tri-religious milieu in like the Islamic age and the Middle Ages. So I mentioned the Persians come in in the early 600s. They give a little partial approval to the idea of building another temple, then they change their minds. Very shortly after that, a few years later, the Muslim conquest. The Arab Muslims come, they capture Jerusalem, and the Caliph Umar considers this a tremendous event, hugely important, and he rides into Jerusalem, and he goes to the Byzantine governor, the guy who has to kind of give up the keys to the city, to this new conquering power, right? He says, take me to Solomon's temple. That is the crucial holy site that we are interested in. Show me Solomon's temple. And the Byzantine governor takes him to the church of the Holy Sepulchre <laughs> because that's yeah. what they think of as the the new temple, right? And Umar says, no, no, this is not what I mean. This is a church that you built over the site of Jesus's tomb, right? I want the temple mount I want to see whatever is left of the temple, the foundations, the walls, whatever is there. Show us. So they go to the Temple Mount, and it's all rubble, right? And garbage. It's being used as like a garbage dump for the city. To the Christians, that makes perfect sense, right? They have rejected that temple in favor of the new temple. But Umar says, no, no, we're clearing this out. And he starts clearing the rubble and the trash out and says, we're going to pray here, right? This is the holy site. We're going to recover whatever it was that Solomon and his kingdom were doing. So they see themselves as kind of the inheritors and revivers of the temple. They clear off the temple mount. First, they build Al-Aqsa Mosque on sort of the edge of what might have been the temple complex. And then after that, they've got more time, more money. They build the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock, architecturally, it's in no way patterned on Solomon's temple. But in their view it is the new temple, right? They see it as just reviving worship on this sacred site in a slightly updated form. And they build this enormous octagonal shrine. It's not exactly like a mosque either. It's very different. It's different from anything that had been built there before, because it's not on this linear plan of progressing from the entranceway to the holy chamber, right? It's round on a central plan looking inwards towards a sort of craggy, flat rock, which the Jewish people had taught was the rock of foundation, right? The place where God began the creation of the universe centered on this sort of rocky platform in the middle of the Temple Mount. So they build the Dome of the Rock around it. And they call the Dome of the Rock the Temple. To them, that's what it is. They're like, we did it, guys. We built a new temple. That's great. They figured it out. Yeah. And it seems that at least some Jews, we don't know what all Jews thought, but at least some Jews in these early years, in the six and 700s, agreed. And were like, great, we've got a new temple. And the caretakers of the Dome of the Rock in the first few decades, the people who tended the lamps and all of that were Jews. And to wow. them, it was like, this is this is good. We did it. We got it, guys. Oh, wow. But then later on in the seven and 800s, there was a growing rift between Muslims and Jews, right? So early on, you could say... It was a lot like early Christianity. You could still be Jewish and Muslim, right? There were
1: Muslim Jews.
0: You could accept Muhammad as a prophet, but also still believe in Jewish law and practice Jewish law. But
1: were those mostly Jews who converted to Islam? Well, we don't really know that
0: they converted. It's more like they worked something out where they said, well, we're Jews and we're practicing what we understand as the law of Moses, but we also in some way accept Muhammad as well. Right, there wasn't necessarily some distinct boundary of like, well, you're not a Jew anymore; you converted. That took time to sort of solidify. Like, well, once you recognize Muhammad, once you say the Shahidah or whatever it is that marks your embrace of Islam and the Quran, then you abandon Judaism. Right? That boundary had to be built gradually because of a, a rift between Jews and Muslims. So that's when the Dome of the Rock became a specifically Muslim building, not for Jews. So then you have to go back. It's like you go back to the drawing board, right? And this is at the same time that Merkabah mysticism is, is developing. You then have to go back and say, all right, well, this isn't the temple. We still need another temple. How are we going to do this? Are we actually going to build a temple? What do we do about the Dome of the Rock? Do we get rid of it? Do we build next to it, on top of it? Or do we do something completely different, something totally spiritualized?
1: When was the Dome of the Rock built? I believe it
0: was the late 600s. I think it was around 690, 695.
1: I wonder if there's any early rabbinic commentary that talks about the Dome of the Rock. It never occurred to me that that would be something early rabbis from that time period would be conscious of and thinking about.
0: Well, remember, the rabbis had worked out what they thought of as Judaism without the temple. So there are always these differences of like, well, they may have thought like, well, we have nothing to do with that. We don't need that. Right. But there maybe were other Jews who embraced it and saw it as positive and promising and legitimate. And then incidentally, the Christian crusaders basically took up the same idea. So the crusaders captured Jerusalem 1099. The new kingdom of Jerusalem just takes control of the Temple Mount. And they, they refer to the Dome of the Rock as the Temple of Solomon. They see it as like, you know they know they know like if you ask them they're like well yeah obviously it was built by the arabs but it's just the new version it's just like temple 3.0 right they eventually they organized the the templar order basically to manage and protect pilgrimage routes in and out of jerusalem and specifically in and out of the temple mount and now you have christian pilgrims coming to the Holy Sepulchre, and also up to the right to the Temple Mount. And they rededicate these as Christian buildings. The Templar order takes over Al-Aqsa Mosque as their headquarters. And the Dome of the Rock, they just say, this is the temple. Come visit the
1: temple. I wonder if there were Christians back then that were like, wait a minute, isn't the fact that the temple doesn't exist supposed to be part of our whole thing, but now we have it? Like, yeah. Whoa, how do we deal with that? Yeah. Seems what Seems like there's, does a, lot mean? there's a lot of contradictions. There's a lot of contradictions.
0: There's a lot of double think.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: And it's interesting. Hist- I've seen historians on Twitter saying like, what's going on with the Templars? You look at their seal and you see the seal, well, the seal reverse shows the Dome of the Rock and around it in Latin, it says the Temple of Solomon. <laughs> and people have asked like... What's going on here? Did they really think it was the Temple of Solomon? And it seems from what I found when I looked into this a few months ago was historians of the Crusades say, well, yeah, they knew it wasn't like literally Solomon's Temple, but they thought it was like the next best thing. And it, it counted. You know, it's like if you look at Canterbury Cathedral, it's not the original Canterbury Cathedral. That one burned down centuries ago. This is just like the second version, but it still counts as Canterbury Cathedral, right? It's still it's still that. So hence, the Dome of the Rock is the temple. And again, it wasn't until later, centuries later, that people started to make these distinctions and say, no, 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 that's not the temple. That's an Islamic building. That's something else. And it wasn't really until the Renaissance. The Renaissance is when you have these Renaissance humanists saying, we have to look back to the early sources. We have to look for accuracy and look for the original sources not these sort of corrupted later revisions and legends and rumor. And so they said, no, 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 we have to go back and exhaustively examine the Bible, the book of Leviticus, the book of Ezekiel, and the Talmud and these Jewish texts and figure out what did the temple really look like and how did it really work? Because that's something totally different from this Islamic building, the Dome of the Rock. And we're sort of living in the wake of that now, in a sense, that Jews and Christians basically all agree the Dome of the Rock is not Solomon's Temple. We're talking about something else. We're talking about something that has not existed for 2,000 years. And if we want the temple, it has to be something totally different.
1: Whoa, okay. So I guess that's an invitation to anyone who wants to start a political movement to just (laughs) say, we already have a temple. We already have Solomon's Temple. It's the Dome of the Rock. It's the
0: Dome of the Rock.
1: Uh, That would be a wild uh, opinion to have nowadays, but if someone feels like adopting that and adding to the fray, you're invited to. I'm inviting you with all the authority I have to do that. Wow. Can I add in one more thing that I think is
0: really great?
1: Yeah, add in something that...
0: So we have this sort of the sense of like the literal temple, right? Which is like very politicized of like what counts as the temple, who can build it, what's the agenda of trying to build a temple. Then you have the mystical temple, where it's a spiritual symbol, and what really matters is the celestial temple, not the earthly temple, right? And then the temple is also like the central symbol. Basically, in Western magic, there's like the magical temple. So the medieval grimoires, the all the ideas about sorcery and necromancy, they all look back to Solomon, right? Solomon was wise. Solomon had the sort of divine knowledge, the divine wisdom, and hence he must have used that and encoded it in some way into the temple, into its its design and its fabric. And so in the Middle Ages, this whole tradition emerged, and we don't know how far back it goes. Like there may be progenitors of it going all the way back to Second Temple Age, like who knows? But there are medieval texts like the Testament of Solomon and the Key of Solomon, which basically say that Solomon was like the first magus, the first like all-powerful man who could control his environment through divine knowledge, divine wisdom. And he was able to build the temple because he encapsulated his divine knowledge in a seal and put it on a seal ring, which is like what kings do, right? Kings have a signet ring and they can seal documents with it to show this carries the authority of the king. But Solomon could seal vessels, bottles, jugs, whatever, and capture spiritual entities like demons or djinns or angels. And then he could control them, right? He was the sort of one human who had mastery over the spirits, right? And there's almost a kind of animism to it, right? Like there are spirits everywhere and everything And Solomon was the one, Magus, who who could control them. And he used them then to build the temple. He had like angel and demon slaves that he could control and direct to build the temple. They were like his his builders. And what was the seal? The early grimoires, these magical books, say that it was a five-pointed star. But then later, it changes to say it was a six-pointed star of two triangles overlaid one over the other. And then late medieval and renaissance churches and synagogues both have that six-pointed star built into their fabric. You can go to like Santa Croce Cathedral in Florence and there's a huge star that we would call a Star of David, right? Or Magen David, built into the entranceway because it's a reference to the Seal of Solomon. The idea that this that in in this case they're saying this church is like the new temple, right? With this power this divine power built into it this symbol it was called the seal of solomon or the shield of david also obviously in hebrew now that's magen david right but that was a symbol of magic and sorcery associated with the temple and you see it in magical books and objects all through those centuries 15 16 1700s it's only later that certain jewish communities start to use that as their symbol of like the Jewish community of Prague or the Jewish community of Budapest. They started to make their own like community seals and they would use that symbol in it. And it evolved little by little to become a general symbol of Judaism in a way that sort of parallels the cross as a symbol of Christianity. But before that, it was the menorah, right? How did you show that a building was a Jewish building? It was the seven branched menorah. That was the symbol of Israel, of the Jewish people. It's only later that it switches gradually and becomes the Star of David. But that's largely because of this deep influence of the magical tradition and the idea of Solomon as a sorcerer. And this was something that could give sort of prestige to Jews in the eyes of Gentiles because it was part of this shared Jewish and Christian and Islamic magical
1: this body of magical tradition. My brain is exploding, Sam. <laughs> My brain is exploding.
0: Well, that was the goal.
1: We didn't even get a chance to talk about Masons, which is your
0: Yeah, yeah. area of expertise. We won't get into it, but you know, just in
1: brief, the basic
0: mythology of Freemasonry that emerges by about 1700 holds that the Masons are descended as a fraternity they're descended from the builders of Solomon's Temple and their first masters were Solomon King Hiram of Tyre, who's the king that the Bible says gave supplies and workers to help build Solomon's temple, and Hiram of Biff, who they teach was the architect and master builder of the project. And the thing is, if you know all this tradition and all this history behind the temple and its significance, it's not surprising that some stonemasons in medieval and Renaissance Europe would have said that, would have said, well, we have secret knowledge, we have special power and divine wisdom that derives from the fact that our forebears helped to build the temple, which was a kind of divine or semi-magical project. Basically, that seems to be what happened is that actual working stonemasons developed this mythology about themselves, connecting themselves to the temple, and also to other projects like the Tower of Babel, And that that sort of caught people's imagination and it took off as a sort of social movement for philosophical gentlemen. And also it's interreligious, right? Since at least the early seventeen, well, actually since the 1600s at least, there have been Jewish and Gentile Freemasons—it sort of plays a similar role. It's this kind of interfaith esoteric movement, a lot like the magical tradition.
1: For people who are interested, they should check out the historian explaining series on the Masons. It's, it seems like there's something similar, perhaps psychologically, happening with Terry Davis and Temple OS, where if you're a Mason, you're—it's a little self-congratulatory or self-promoting to equate yourself to being descended from the people who built the Third Temple there might be something there Happen when you say your software is the third temple. I mean, obviously, that's pretty self-aggrandizing, but it's it's similar to the Masons, perhaps. Where the desire to do the self-aggrandizement and to create the myths around that comes from is probably differs, you know, between uh, Terry from Temple OS and the Masons Mm -hmm. specifically.
0: Well, it's very interesting when you look at like the rituals of the Freemasons, the things that they say and recite when they open a lodge. A basic idea is that the Masonic Lodge is the successor of the temple, right? And there are very early documents from the 1600s where Masons say, how stands your lodge? And the answer is east and west as the temple at Jerusalem, right? There's the idea that the lodge is patterned on the temple. Although the lodge is abstract, it's an institution, right? Lodges can have buildings, they can have meeting halls or not they can meet in wherever. They can meet in a tavern, a barracks, wherever they want. The lodge is an imaginary space, right? It's a conceptual space that is ritually created. But in a sense, they're constantly, and they'll say this, they're they are constantly at work. Every lodge meeting is a day of work on the temple. They're constantly, in a sense, rebuilding, recreating the temple eternally, right? And then it's very interesting when you think about someone creating an operating system, which is, I mean, I don't know anything about. Computer science, but it's like it's software and sort of firmware too, right? Or is it just software?
1: Uh you, you could say it's firmware, it's software. It's all of it.
0: It's all of the above. It's like, it's like something kind of in between abstract and concrete, right? It's like it exists in a machine, but it is not like a physical object. It's something that runs through a machine. So I think it's similarly sort of semi-abstract, and it is always kind of in operation, right? It's always doing work.
1: Right? Yes. Yeah, it is always doing work.
0: <laughs> and that's how it exists, right? Is by operating. Yeah. So it's in this sort of weird realm where it's like not a purely imaginary thing, but it's not really a tangible, concrete thing either. It's like in the interface in between.
1: Do you have any closing thoughts? Uh, how do we summarize all of the influence that the temple has on Jews, on Muslims, on Christians, on Masons, on eccentric people like Terry and many, many others?
0: Yeah, I mean, yeah, how can you sum everything up? But I think that when you look at the different ways people have talked about the temple, you can start to get a certain sense that like thinking about the temple, depicting it, interpreting it, discussing what the different symbolisms of the chambers, the objects, it serves a certain shared purpose. It gives it kind of common language for different people to talk about the search for the divine, the search for an encounter with the divine, the search to understand reality beyond the sort of everyday physical experience, right? It, give, it gives people almost like, like a shared set of, of tools, sometimes literally, right? Things like, you know, candle lighters. And <laughs> people have written treatises about like, what does the shofar represent? And like, what does the drum or trumpet in the temple represent? So it gives people sort of shared concrete things to grasp while talking about things that are very spiritual, very philosophical, very cosmic, right? And that I think is why It provides this kind of common thread through time, through, you know, more
1: than 2,000 years. Thank you, Sam, for sharing all the research you did on the temple and your thoughts on what could be going on here. I don't know if it's going to resolve any of your questions, listeners, if you had them about the temple or if it's just going to raise new ones, but it's wild stuff. I especially loved that Jews saw the Temple of the Rock as Solomon's temple. That's wild to me. I didn't know that. So thank you, Sam, for coming on the show and sharing.
0: Thanks. It was a great idea to talk about this.
1: To all of our listeners, shavua tov. Have a great week. Thanks.
0: So another really remarkable fact that i was able to learn recently about the ways that solomon's temple has been recreated and readapted through the ages involves the khazar kingdom which is a central asian turco-mongolic kingdom that existed in the early middle ages in the steppe lands of what's now russia and a portion at least of khazar society reportedly converted to Judaism in the 9th century AD. And the ruler or Khagan of the Khazars allegedly wrote a series of letters to his Jewish co-religionists in Spain in the 900s, discussing the history of the Khazar kingdom and their conversion to Judaism. The authenticity of these letters have been disputed but nonetheless with various textual and archaeological and numismatic forms of evidence most scholars today do agree that some conversion of some portion of the khazar kingdom to judaism did happen and so these letters might contain something at least suggestive of how these new jews in the steps of what's today russia viewed their adherence to Jewish law and Jewish tradition, and one of these letters describes early converts to Judaism in Khazaria, led by the Khagan of that time called Bulan, their creation of their own version of the temple. And in one of these letters, the leader Bulan is said to have encountered an angel. Who charged him with building a new temple? And it says The angel appeared to him again and said, My son, the heavens and earth cannot contain me. Nevertheless, my son, build a temple in my name, and I will dwell in it. The people were victorious in battle and sanctified the spoils and used them to build the tent of meeting, the ark, the menorah, the table, the altars, and the holy vessels. They did this with God's mercy and the might of the Almighty God. These articles exist to this day and are under my protection, quote. So presumably what this letter is describing is actually a mobile shrine that recreates some of the aspects and tools of the ancient temple, but enclosed within a hide chamber, basically a large tent that we would call a yurt, which then could be mounted on top of a wheeled cart and moved around on the steppe, as some yurts today still are in places like Mongolia. And what's so wonderful about this story is not just what seems like the juxtaposition, right, of Jewish tradition with this very different steppe land, Central Asian society, but also it really brings the story of the temple full circle, Since the temple was built according to the template of the tabernacle, as it's described in detail in the Torah, and the tabernacle was basically the same thing. It was a mobile tent shrine picked up and carried from place to place by a nomadic people. And I think this might underscore really how much the temple was defined not only by its location on this sacred mount, which is arguably the most prized and most disputed piece of real estate on earth, but also its function and its place in the center of the life of this particular group, the Israelites, and how that function of the temple could then be picked up, recreated, reappropriated by their descendants and by others all around the world through the rest of world history. So thank you so much for listening, and again, if you sign up at any level as a patron, you'll have access to Myth of the Month 22 about culture, which I think is an especially important installment of Myths of the Month, and this was brought to you by the letter H, and so I will thank my current active patrons, whose names begin with H, Heather Anderson, and Henry. Thank you.